these conversations can be very, very quick, but very powerful. So these conversations might be two or three sentences, and then they move on to something else. And that's very much how children process grief. It's in short little bursts where they ask one or two questions, they get their answer, and then they move on and they're talking about what their friend did that was silly the other day or wanting to grab your hand and invite you into playing hide and seek. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and in today's episode, we have the emotional first responder, Jessica Carenti. For 14 years, Jessica has served vulnerable children and families in the hospital setting as a certified child life specialist, specifically helping children and families cope with death. Jessica speaks openly about her own personal trauma, experiencing multiple miscarriages and a stillbirth. Join us as we dive deep into what it takes to overcome the death of a child, why we should talk to our kids about death as soon as possible, and how to do so, the unique way that children process death compared to adults, the best movies and books to help kids understand death, what the stages of grief are, and so much more. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So what is a kid's grief specialist? So a kid's grief specialist um, can come from a bunch of different uh, professions. So my background as a certified child life specialist has has one specific lens, but then there are also um, additional professionals that can be supporting grieving kids from a social work background, a psychology background, so there, there are a lot of different professionals that work with grieving kids. I can certainly speak to um, my my background and my lens the best, but um, there's there's not any one specific role that is, you know, the the one and only grief specialist. Um, so, with my background, I, I started in the hospital setting, um, spending the first five years of my career in pediatric intensive care units. So Mm -hmm. certainly a lot of grief happens in an intensive care unit. So that started my, my training right there with just being, being thrown into helping support children and families through the most devastating times in, in their lives. So a person who has specific grief training. Um, they, they know a lot about typical children's development. They know about how children respond to grief because children are not little mini adults. They respond to loss and grief in different ways than adults do. Um, they, they also typically have training in utilizing play to help children learn how to process their emotions and express their emotions and give them an outlet because that's how children learn about their world and process their world. It's through play. So anybody who works with grieving children should have a strong foundation in in those specific areas. Death is that thing that it seems like in the Western world, at least, we really don't talk about um, that often. It seems like it's almost taboo with, you know, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. But it's it's something that's really – it's swept under the rug a little bit. So oftentimes when um, anybody encounters death and, and, you know, I was interested to see some of the stats on your Instagram where you, you talked about like one in 13 kids are going to experience the death of a parent or a sibling. You know, one in five, you know, teens before 18 are going to experience death as well. And you think it would be a conversation that we'd be having a little bit more um, out there, but we just aren't. So it's almost, it kind of hits you from left field when there is, is some passing. So um, I'm certainly grateful that there's you and, and a lot of other people that are are out there having the conversations and helping to support families throughout it. Because um, yeah, it's just, again, it's not a conversation that's often, often had. Yeah. It's uncomfortable for people. And of course, you know, part of life is death. Nobody's getting out of here alive, but it's <laughs> it's something that people have a really difficult time talking about because it's uncomfortable, it's painful, and I think a lot of times 
parents and caregivers, they want to shield their child from pain and suffering. And what often is not realized is that we, we can't take pain and suffering away from our children. It is going to happen. But what we can do is we can sit there with them in their pain and suffering and teach them coping strategies to deal with the tough stuff because life is life is tough. There are things that happen all the time, um, death and otherwise, that are really difficult. And by avoiding these conversations, we are really leaving children to themselves to figure this out, which of course is, you know, so isolating, so confusing. So we we really want to normalize conversations about death and that can that can start at the youngest of ages. I mean, even even toddlers going outside on a walk and stumbling upon a dead animal, the conversation can start start, you know, in those earliest times to build that foundation so that hopefully the foundation is already there for when it does hit closer to to home. But it's it's tough because people just don't want to talk about death and they they don't know the right words to use they don't want to don't want to screw it up <laughs> they don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing so a lot of people avoid it because they just don't know what to do and that's a big part of why I am on Instagram providing just you know some of these kids grief facts and and language that we can use to help make sure that we're providing appropriate language to use with children when talking about death and dying, because there is a lot of language that can add to the misconceptions and the fear. So uh, anything that I can do to really bring that awareness and help people develop their tools in order to have these conversations with children, that's that's what I'm what I'm here for and what what I hope people get out of, of my page. That's amazing. And there's so much to unpack there. Um, just as a, as a side note, I, I remember I, I was listening to a, um, a pre-recorded talk by Alan Watts, the philosopher, and he had gone to Japan and he had um, visited a bunch of the Buddhist monks that were in Japan. And one of the things that he he recognized back in the 50s and 60s is that so many of them had smiling skulls in their like very small little cells. Like they didn't have very many possessions, but most of them carried some sort of skull in, in their room with them. And, you know, to us Westerners, we see like that's so morbid and like, why would you, why would you surround yourself with death? But they actually saw it as something very different, which is, it was a reminder of the impermanence of life and that there is death on the other side of this. So one, live very uh, in the now and, and live your life fully, but also to not be afraid of, like you said, the inevitability of, of no one here gets out of uh, here alive. Um, I yeah. really like that line that you said. So, yeah. but going back, so unpacking what you had said. So I know there's a lot of listeners and parents that were like, okay, you know what? We want to have those conversations with our children, especially toddlers. You, you know, we're going on a walk. You see, you know, a bird that that that's that's dead, or or, or some sort of death when they get confronted to it. What is um, some healthy ways to bridge that conversation? Start talking to uh, toddlers, and obviously, it's all I'm assuming age appropriate, depending on how old they are. But let's just maybe start with toddlers. What would you suggest is a good way to uh, talk about death to a toddler? So, with any age group, I always want to start with assessing what they know, because often they know a lot more than we think they do. Hmm. So, I mean, so let's say, you know, you saw that, that dead bird on the sidewalk while you're going on a walk with your toddler and they point it out and they say, what's, what's going on with that bird? You can ask them, what, what do you think? And see where they take that conversation. And if it's something totally, um, you know, not even close to what's going on, you can say, well, actually, it looks like that bird died. And then talking about what dead actually means, because with that, especially at a toddler age, they can have all these ideas of what that means that is not actually, you know, the, the truth there. So talking about how when somebody, somebody or something is dead, they don't feel any pain, they don't move, all of the things that makes us us. We don't think, don't talk, don't eat. So really taking it down to the very simplistic, concrete pieces. And that's it. It's keeping things very concrete, because if it's not concrete, then they will add a meaning to it that makes sense in their brains because they think very concretely about things. So 
that that language is very important to to make sure that it doesn't have a double meaning or it's not softening the language. So I always encourage people to use the words death, dying and died uh, when they have conversations, especially really for all ages, but especially for for toddlers, preschoolers and early school agers, because they have such magical thinking and they can only relate to what they have experienced in the past. So I know it might feel easier, more comfortable for adults to say, oh, the bird passed away or the bird is in a better place. All of those sayings can be confusing to children and they can add to worries and um, just just really not getting a full picture of what has actually happened. So um, so that's something that that I always encourage people to do, just be direct and simple and these conversations can be very, very quick, but very powerful. So these conversations might be two or three sentences, and then they move on to something else. And that's very much how children process grief. It's in short little bursts where they ask one or two questions, they get their answer, and then they move on and they're talking about what their friend did that was silly the other day or wanting to and grab your hand and invite you into playing hide and seek. So I, I really want to talk about the um, the bursts and, and how children basically process uh, grief through bursts. Um, but before we do, I want to take a step back and you mentioned, you know, one of the ways to talk about death and dying to a toddler or to a child is to use definitive language and not shy, shy away from the word, you know, death and dead and dying, but also to kind of explain it in, in a term where it's like, Everything that makes you you is no longer there, and, and to use kind of definitive um, language. Now, to most adults, if we were to hear death being described like that, that would terrify most of us. Like, you know, like who we are, it's not who we're going to be. And I mean, obviously, nobody really knows what happens after you die. So there's a lot of religious connotations. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of ambiguity with it. But I'm just curious when you when you speak to a child in your experience with more definitive uh, language when it comes to dying, how do they respond to it typically, knowing that they don't quite have as much attachment to life. They don't have quite as much um, story around um, everything that us adults might have if you were to explain death the same way to us. So so usually the, the fear and anxiety comes from a lack of understanding or a lack of information. It's the fear of the unknown. And of course, there are plenty of unknowns with death and dying and what happens after we all die. Um, but generally speaking, the more the more children know in an age appropriate way and you know giving that information in small doses based on the questions that they're asking generally kids are less anxious about death and dying because they they know they have they have that concrete information um so was there another part to that sorry i i no, listen, it was a bit of a nebulous uh, question because it, it was just one of these, it's more of a curiosity on my end because I know that death is a difficult conversation where most of us, we seek some sort of religious framework or some sort of idea because of that fear of unknown. Nobody really likes to think that all of a sudden you just cease to exist. Your personality, your essence, everything's gone and you're just, you're worm food. And, and you know, for atheists or, or um, you know, people that are comfortable in that nihilistic view, sure. But I'd say for most people, that's kind of terrifying. So we we seek some sort of story that makes us feel a little bit better. And I'm just kind of well, curious. Okay. To, to tell children, we don't have all the answers. It's okay to say, you know, I'm not really sure about that. This is what I believe. This is what other cultures believe. And there are some wonderful books out there that do a really good job of taking a multicultural, multi um, belief system view at maybe what does happen after after death. And there is a point, now this is difficult for young, young children because they're not quite there with their abstract thinking, but there there is a point where kids have this conversation of, I know that their physical body is not here, but what about, you know, what makes them them? Like their their soul, what, what happens then? And that's where these conversations come into play. I actually, um, there's a, a movie that I referenced with within my work with kids that does a beautiful job of showing this the the Pixar movie soul mm-hmm. is such a wonderful display of this and i really love the use of not only books but just any type of visual 
an immersion that kids can get to describe really abstract ideas. I love the use of them within um, my work with grieving children in conversations. And that's, that's one of my favorite movies to really help explore that a little bit because they really do show in such a, uh, of course, there's a lot of abstract things within that movie, but they do such a good way of taking some of that abstract um, thought and idea about what happens after death and making it um, understandable to a young child. Um, even even my like four four year old and seven year old really understood that difference between the body and the soul after after watching that movie and had a lot of conversations about what what they thought it would be like. Um, there there are other movies too that that do a great job exploring that as well. Uh, I'm very pleased with how mainstream media is starting to really bring some of these topics into the forefront so families and children can have some of these conversations. It, it brings that invitation and makes it, you know, more, more acceptable, more open. I, I'm a big fan of normalizing these type of conversations because it takes some of the stigma out of it. And it also kind of going back to the skulls uh, for the for the monks, which is like, you know, the idea is that you live more fully by understanding that this is impermanent. And I think that that's a beautiful concept and, and something that would be beneficial for all of us. Um, you know, there's that old question, like, what would you do if you knew you only had six months to live? Most of us would not be doing what we're doing right now in our day to day activities. Our priorities would change and we'd really be living um, a more aligned life but Pixar um, that's a great movie I saw it once and in true Pixar fashion of course you know just as much um, adults can get out of the movie as kids and I remember one of the kind of concepts that they they did a beautiful job to kind of illustrate and make tangible was the idea of those souls that are kind of just trapped in like head down just just like in those like kind of like loops in those like you know the big dark cloud that's around them and that they're not quite you know breaking out um, and and we all know adults that are a little bit like that stuck in patterns stuck in a little bit of a dark cloud and are just like just kind of like going around in circles a little bit in life and and i thought that was just a beautiful way to kind of um visualize the way that they did those those kind of trapped personalities and souls but yeah, yeah pixar you mentioned a couple other ones is there any other movies off the top of your head that uh, you would suggest people um that does a good uh, job to kind another, of another one is is the movie coco um okay is another great one and that's um, also a pixar movie correct i believe so. yeah i i think so is that um, where they talk about the Day of the Dead? And it's yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's Pixar as well. Yeah. And I, I love how within these movies, it's speaking to the love that we carry with mm. us as as we're grieving as well. And um, within my work with grieving children, especially grieving children who have had some time to to process the the death and the secondary losses that they've gone through. So much of their reflection is the love that they have for that that person. And that's just the really beautiful thing. And when when you were mentioning the story about the monks, what what I pulled from that and what I was thinking and feeling was the 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 love that they have. And yes, they, you know, everybody knows that we're all gonna die one day. And not but and <laughs> we can carry that that love with us and that joy all at the same time. Um, and, and that's a journey. It doesn't happen, you know, right after the death of, of someone. But uh, thinking thinking through many of the kids that I work with, that that really comes out and really flourishes as they are able to process their grief and have that outlet for their grief that that love and joy ends up being really at the forefront and some of those heavier darker things are more in in, in bursts it's not that ever present now we're going to get back to um, some of the tangible grief kind of tips and tricks and how how children um, process everything but I'm kind of curious Jessica for you being immersed in this work how has your um, thought about death evolved uh, over the years um, so as a, as a professional, I'd say, uh, at, 
at first in my career, those first five years in pediatric ICUs, every single death was extremely heavy, extremely taxing. And I was always, you know, told by my mentors and my supervisors that, you know, this, this grief that I'm feeling that secondary grief and trauma, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my story to carry. Um, and that's easier said than done. You know, we're, we're immersed in these situations with these families and supporting them. And it's, it's sad and it's hard and we're all human. So we're going to carry some of that. Um, but really for, for me, it all transitioned when I went through my, my own personal grief with going through several miscarriages and then a stillbirth. And that of course has changed who I am in every aspect of life. It's changed who I am as a professional. It's changed who I am personally. And the, the more that I have immersed myself in grief work on both a personal and professional level, the more comfortable I have gotten just with my own mortality and helping, helping others explore these, these topics as well. Um, you know, of, of course there are things that none of us will ever know and figure out until we go through the, the death and dying process ourselves. But I think with many things, the, the more we know, the less anxious we become about things. Um, there's, there's actually somebody that, that I follow on, on Instagram that talks about this all of the time. I don't know if you follow her, but uh, hospice nurse Julie is somebody that I follow. And she talks about this all the time. The, the, often the fear about dying is because we just don't have a lot of information about what that process looks like. And the more we know, both as children and adults, the more we know in, you know, simple, concrete terms, typically the less anxious we are going to be. Now, everybody's a little bit different, but in general, the more the more we know in an age-appropriate way from children all the way through adults, the less anxious we're going to be. So, um, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always evolving, but I, I think it's, it's really, um, it's really changed because of the, the personal experiences that I've gone through as well. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, and I don't know if it's appropriate to say like, I'm sorry uh, that you had to go through that. Um, I know that, you know, it is often in those moments of pain and challenge that we really do kind of uncover sides of ourselves and sides of, of, of the way that we view the world and we evolve through that. Um, and going through our own pregnancy journey, we didn't experience anything to do with any sort of miscarriages or, or stillbirths, um, but we realized how common it is and how, how you know, most mothers have encountered some sort of challenge during pregnancy and they don't talk about it very much. Um, and so as soon as somebody gets pregnant, all of a sudden you start hearing from everybody that they've gone through some sort of similar type, um, you know, challenge. And, you know, I think again, by you having the strength and, and, and talking publicly about it, it gives other people permission to talk about it as well. And for those mothers that, um, or parents that have gone through something similar with, um, a miscarriage or stillbirth, what were some of the things that you found that kind of helped you compartmentalize it or to process it, or just to kind of get through that challenge? So, so everybody is going to have their own way. So there's not any right or wrong way to process it and go through, through the grief. And that goes for any type of grief situation. We're all going to process it in our own way. Um, for, for me specifically, I, I had a few different things that I did in the immediate time. And it's interesting because the, the ways in which I found, um, healing and supportive to process my grief in, the early, you know, weeks and months is totally different than what I do now, nearly six years later. So it's it's a process that evolves. Um, but for for me personally, in the beginning, connecting with others who had been through similar uh, grief and loss situations. So some of that was finding people uh, that wrote blogs about what their experience was. 
and really seeing myself in their own stories and feeling less alone. Um, I, I know a lot of people find um, support and comfort in support groups. So having that in-person support um, at the time that I went through my losses, I didn't know of any in, in my area. Um, now there, there are several. So I wish that was there when, when I was going through all of this um, during, during the initial phases of, of my grief. Um, <clears throat> but different things will work for different people. Sometimes journaling is really helpful. Sometimes people will find certain hobbies that are a good release. Um, sometimes that's movement. Sometimes that's things more in the, the arts focused, um, genre. Sometimes it's doing like creating a project to do something with all of that bottled up energy and emotion. So, um, so that could be something that is really helpful too. Um, and so every, everybody's going to be a little bit different. I feel like I've done a little bit of all of the things that I actually just described, but at different times throughout my grief journey. It if it helps anybody, um, if my own personal belief is, is, is that if, if you do come from a framework that this isn't the only kick of the can, um, if you do believe that you potentially have had multiple lives or reincarnation, or if you have that kind of framework in place, then um, I would find comfort in the idea that potentially those little souls weren't quite ready to experience an entire full uh, material existence or third dimensional reality. So you basically help to just provide them a little kind of a dip their little feet into the water. They weren't quite ready for an entire experience. Um, and I know that for my own self that that would help me to kind of understand um, that it's a little less heavy that way that it was just more of like a, they weren't quite ready for a full the full experience because you know being alive is, is a heavy thing and there's a lot that goes into it but uh, yeah. yeah it's definitely a death in general I mean it's it's it can be heavy and it's all a matter of perspective and, and the story that we tell about it. And I guess that's kind of part of what conversations like this do is that they help us to either rewrite um, the story or just to see different, you know, viewpoints of, of, of what is and what isn't and, and trying to take a different kind of perspective out of it. So, um, yeah. Okay. So going back then, so we've talked a little bit about, about how adults can go through grief and uh, some healthy ways for them to either perspective or, or, you know, be around community and, and, and find other people that have kind of gone through similar situations. Now going back and, and you talked about toddlers and children experiencing grief in bursts. Is that different than how adults experience it? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the, the bursts of grief. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so typically when an adult goes through, a death. It's this all-consuming weight. They often, you know, really struggle with all the daily life things. They struggle with getting up out of bed in the morning and, you know, going to make themselves a meal and all of the all of the things that they went through leading up to that death. It's very cognitive. It's all in their mind nonstop often replaying the events that led to the death, everything that happened within that time. Um, so it's very all-consuming for adults. The way that children, and, and this goes for older children as, as well, school-agers and, and often teens, it's, it's in burst. They, they don't have the capacity yet to have that all-consuming type of experience, which actually is a protective thing too. Mm. So they, they will have these short bursts of, you know, maybe a few minutes at a time, really taking in their, their experiences, thinking through it and reacting to what is going on in their mind. Um, and often for the younger kids, this comes out as a behavioral response which can which can be confusing to the adults to see, you know, if if there's this big temper tantrum about something, it could actually be the grief that is finding its way out. So um, often the youngest kids that are grieving, they might not have the words yet to articulate what it is they are actually thinking and feeling, but it's it's going to come out somehow. And often that will be through a behavioral response. So, um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, thinking through just having these uh, conversations that are happening about death and dying, let's say a, a parent is talking about a grandparent that is really, really sick and dying and they, the parent gives a little bit of information about what's going on, what to expect with the, the time to come. The child might ask one or two questions, really deep, powerful questions. And then again, they, they just move on to, to something else. So they, um, which, which often is confusing to parents. They might wonder, okay, did they understand what I was telling them? Are they getting it? Um, because they will often just go right back to like laughing and joking about things right after talking about death. So that can be confusing for, for the adults that are helping them process and understand what is taking place. Is, is it still the, the prevailing wisdom where grief for adults, you kind of go through those, those stages of, you know, um, bargaining and anger and like disbelief and then you know acceptance is that still the prevailing wisdom and if so is that similar for children or do they seem to have their own kind of um i guess hierarchy or uh you know steps that they go through with grief yeah so that's that's a great question there there are no stages of grief um that is something so so that theory came from it, it was never intended for coping with the death of a loved one. What, what that theory was intended for is how somebody processes their own terminal illness and coming to terms with their own death, not the death of somebody else. So, um, so there, there is no grief, uh, stages of grief timeline, uh, that fits for any, anyone, adult or, or a child, Grief is going to feel totally different for each individual. Even individuals that experience the same death, it's going to feel totally different for the mom, the dad, the brother, the sister, uh, because they had a different relationship. They are in different places with within their own lives. They have different personalities. So there are a lot of factors that feed into what that grief experience is going to feel like to them. So there's not any one size fits all. I, I always encourage people to just be be very curious and try to learn from the griever, whether this is a child or an adult, learn from the griever what it's like for them. And also, I, I like to always say there's there's not really any professional out there that is a grief expert. Yes, we, there are plenty of people that are well trained in in grief, but the only expert is the griever themselves. They're the only ones that know their grief story to a T. So, um, yeah, there's, there's just, there's really not any, you know, hard, hard stages or timelines or anything like that, which I know people always, always want something like, you know, in a pretty little structure, but, um, there, there really are not, um, stages of grief. It's grief is, messy and complicated and often feels like a roller coaster of so many jumbled up emotions all at once. With grief, there sometimes is a danger that we might get identified with the pain or the loss or the grief where we may get stuck in that. Have you seen that? And is there an appropriate, I'm not going to say like a, like a time that, hey, you're only allowed, you know, six months to grieve, but like, how would you, how would you help somebody that maybe is identifying with the grief more than moving past and, and moving on with their life? Like, like that's kind of like a, a sticky situation or, or a challenging kind of, because I, I would imagine, I mean, I guess I don't share this with very many people, but I lost my father when I was 14. Uh, he took his own life. Um, and so I, I never processed that grief very well. I, I think I had maybe an hour session mandatory with like whoever was there when it first happened and that's it. And yeah. for me to process that grief, it came out through anger, destructiveness. Like I just like, it was, you know, I was in pain. And so I wanted the whole world to basically feel my pain as well. Mm -hmm. So I know that there's, there's obviously you need to release those emotions because otherwise they're going to become very um, destructive. And then 
I'm just kind of curious in, in, in your professional opinion or, or in, in your experience, how do you help somebody to not be identified with that grief? Or is that okay to, to be like, hey, that's a part of my chapter and you know that, that's just you know a part of it? I, I think there, there's not really any one right answer, just, just um, in the same way that there's not any right or wrong way to grieve. For some people in some situations, they will carry their grief with them for the rest of their lives. Because, and, and that grief is going to feel different. It's not going to be that all-consuming, raw, heavy grief all the time. But for, for many people, they, they will carry it with them forever because that love and connection that they have with their person who died is always there. So um, I know for, for me personally, with my daughter who died, there, there's not a single day that I don't think about her. And I have spoken with many um, bereaved parents that are, you know, in their 70s, 80s, 90s that talk about their children who died when when they were young and they still think about them every day. Um, one, one of the most powerful experiences that I had running a remembrance walk a few years ago, there there was this woman who came up to me and said, how powerful the event was. It was the very first time that she heard her daughter's name said out loud. And she said, my, my daughter would have been 40 this month. And it was the very first time her daughter was stillborn. Mm -hmm. And it was the very first time that she had that recognition of her, her daughter's life. And she was telling me, you know, I think about her every day. I, I don't have a space or a place where I can really talk about her or process this, but I, will always know exactly how old she would have been. And I, I just remember that experience and those type of interactions I've had many times where people far, far beyond where I am in the grief journey are still talking about their grief and their love for their child or whoever, whoever it, it may have been. So for some people, they will carry that with them forever. And again, it's going to feel different, you know, throughout different times of the year. It's not that all ever present um, anger and um, sadness and all of those like heavier emotions that we can have with grief. But um, that's, that's not the only way. There are some people who do their, um, their grief work. And it's, it's not something that they necessarily think about every day. So it's, it's very situational and it's very individual. So I, I don't know if that, um, really helps answer that question, but depending on the person and their grief situation, it could be something that they feel like they have resolved and healed from, or it could be something that they feel like they are healing through and carry with them forever. So hopefully that and makes And it's so often the case in, in life that there is no right or wrong answer. There's just kind of the experience that we're going through. Yeah. Now, those supports make such a huge difference. No matter where you are in that process, having those, those outlets that work for you and having those supports that work for you in those times where things might feel a little bit heavier. Sure. For for many adults, we would just be really quick to be like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, you know, and and not really be be honest with any sort of you know challenges or pain that we're in. For the children, so for from a parent's point of view or the caregivers, do you find that you know children may not be honest with the pain that they're in, um, or in, like we'll, we'll focus on young children for a second, but you know, is that something that as a caregiver or a parent, we want to kind of probe and pull out of them, or do we kind of accept at face value that, you know, th there may not be something there. They may have processed it healthy and, and kind of moved on from it by us continually bringing it up or actually uh, bringing it back into their reality. Is there a fine balance there or is there a way to kind of discover that? There, there are a few different things um, to pull from this conversation. So, um, so one, yes, children can absolutely hold some of it in and not show their unfiltered grief with mm -hmm. their parent or caregiver, often because they don't want to add to their plate. So let's say um, typically if the child is grieving, 
usually their caregiver is grieving too. Usually it's a loss that has um, affected the whole family. So some children, even very young children, as a proactive measure for their caregiver, they might not show everything that they are thinking or feeling, which is why it can be so helpful and important for grieving children to have a support outside of their immediate grieving circle, because that is their place where they can show their unfiltered grief and not feel like it's going to be a burden or add to the situation for others within their circle. Um, because some children, especially young children, can feel really guilty about the death. They might think they caused the death or they might think that um, things that they said or did could have changed the outcome. So, so those type of really heavy thoughts can be sitting in these children and they don't want to ask their parents because they don't want they they fear what answer they might have. Um, so there, there can be that um, piece of it. As far as helping parents figure out that balance, because it is a balance. We don't want to, we don't want to like really like tear things out of them that they're not ready for. We really want to follow the lead of a child when, when approaching sensitive topics like death. So bringing opportunities into play and conversation where it can come up naturally. So um, there, there are great children's books that can be introduced and the conversation can naturally go from, from there when talking about death and dying and emotions and connection and really simple one-line open-ended questions within the use of those books or play can really help guide the conversation. So um, for, for example, um, perhaps for a toddler using an emotions book, like I really like, um, I really like the color monsters book. Um, I also really like, um, there's a book about, um, monsters eating, eating worries, these type mm -hmm. of books, you can utilize them and reflect back some of the things that you're seeing in the book. You might notice certain things in your child's life, like with one of the color monsters, like that color monster was feeling really angry. I noticed the other day you got really angry like that when, and then explain what it was. So, so bringing up these conversations in a relatable way and then following their lead from there. So one little, you know, open-ended question and then seeing where, where that might go. Um, and the same goes for, for play as well. Like I said, children will process their world through play. So having some open-ended toys that kids can play with. I'm a huge fan of having, you know, doll houses and and little little dolls and action figures and Play-Doh is always great. These open-ended toys where kids can create their own scene and often kids will act out what what they have experienced, what they wish would have happened, and um, really just allowing children to play through everything that that comes up. I know sometimes people feel really uncomfortable when they see their children playing through these like death themes and death topics, but allowing that is something that is a really healing outlet for for children as well. So. Um, I know I probably went in a lot of different directions there, but <laughs> no, I thought uh, it was fantastic. I mean, one of the big takeaways is, and it's something you said right at the very onset of the conversation was, is that one of the ways that children deal with grief is through play. And, and that's, it, that's the outlet that they can use. And if they can almost role play and you can also get a, a, I'm assuming a pretty good glimpse into their unique way of processing death is through what they're saying with the actual figures and the, and the Barbies and the toys because you're kind of getting a, a little glimpse into into their mindset and, and the way they're looking at it which could also help prepare or arm you to you know maybe you know adjust their thinking or to kind of be there for for love and support when they need it so if not I, th I thought it was great what would be maybe um a tip because 
often kids are going to be modeling um, as, as a new parent myself. I'm, you know, it, it, it's one of the things that's right around the corner is, you know, my, my baby boys just turned six months yesterday. And so I know it's just around the corner where all of a sudden everything I say, he's going to be picking up, uh, you know, my mannerisms, everything. So I'm becoming hyper aware, very cognizant of, you know, the fact that he's going to be modeling my behavior. Is there, is there any tips or is there any um, advice that you'd give to parents that are grieving as well as to um, how they can present themselves for their children, knowing that they're going to be modeled? Um? Sure. Uh, I'd say one of the biggest things is allowing yourself to show your emotions in front of your children. And I think, again, this can be uncomfortable. People aren't sure if it's the right thing to do. But showing some of your emotions and showing children how not only it's okay to to feel all of these different emotions, including the ones that are uncomfortable either within ourselves or for other people to witness, but showing also as an adult what you do with those emotions. Um, And that can really teach children, you know, it's one, it's okay to show any emotion that I have. And two, I saw my adult doing X, Y, Z when they felt this specific emotion. And then it will, you know, hopefully the, the hope is that it will teach them ways to, um, work through the emotions that come up because there are going to be lots of different emotions that come up. And some of them are very uncomfortable within ourselves and for other, other people. And what we, what we don't want to do is to, you know, bottle everything up or have this, you know, false face in front of our child that everything is totally fine when it's really not, because that's just showing them that they should just take their own emotions and push them down as well. So I I always encourage people to be open with, their emotions. If it's a tough day, they can say, I'm just having a really tough day because, and, um, just allowing kids to see their, their caregivers sitting in whatever emotion is coming up for them. Um, that's, that's probably the the biggest suggestion. And I, I know, again, that's, um, something that is, a there, there's not like any one level that is like, this is the appropriate level of showing those emotions. It's, there are a lot of different factors that go into that. And, um, that's something that everyone will have to figure out for, for themselves and their family and the temperament of their child. And so many factors go into that. And that's where it's helpful to have a professional to bounce off some of these, um, conversations with what, what is truly happening in the home. Um, because, there, there's not one blanket, you know, this is the appropriate amount of emotion and things to share with, with your child. It's, it's really, there are going to be a lot of different factors that play into what, what works best for that, that family unit. It seems like one of the takeaways that I'm getting from this, um, from your answer and from this conversation is it seems like so often the answer for being a good parent is is showing up is being present is is being there in the emotion in the in the moment and you had mentioned this right at the very beginning is is to sit there with the the children as they're going through it and, and just basically being a sounding board and just being present there for them and so it yeah, seems like that is huge i mean sometimes that's that's the number one thing the presence and the connection and as parents, we are not going to get it right 100% of the time. There are things that we are going to say that are not going to be the right thing in the moment. And that's okay, too. We are human. And, you know, as as parents supporting a grieving child, you're probably grieving as well. So giving yourself grace to to make mistakes sometimes. And then you can you can backtrack and say, you know what, I, I really wish I could have said that differently or done that differently or, uh, you know, just showing in, in time, a different response to that question. So, um, just giving, giving yourself grace too, but that, that connection and that presence are really the, the top two things that I would really encourage parents to, um, really foster with supporting grieving children. Yeah. Beautiful. Jessica, how do we raise great kids? What does it mean to be a great parent? I think that just goes back to what we just said, that um, that presence, that connection, that curiosity, um, every child is so different and has 
different different needs, different wonders, different worries. Um, so again, just getting getting curious about what what it is that's going on in their world and their mind and what what brings them joy, um, what what helps support them. So that that curiosity. Awesome. Jessica, this has been a very powerful conversation and, and, and we need to be having more of these conversations. We need to, you know, people need to know that they're not alone and that there's resources and other people that they can lean on um, to kind of go through some of the challenges uh, that life throws at you. So, uh, you know, thank you for the conversation. For those listeners and parents that, that um, would, would like some help or would like to be able to get in touch with you or to learn from uh, some of your guidance, what's the best way for people to find you? A few different ways to find me. The The best way to find me is on my website, which is uh, kidsgriefsupport.com. And um, people can reach out to me there if they are wanting a parent consultation, if they want some support for, for their children. I offer both virtual sessions as well as in person. I'm, I'm in uh, Maryland in the Baltimore area. But I, I'd say at least half of my clients are actually virtual clients from really all over the place. So um, the the whole virtual aspect is much more powerful than I ever would have thought um, a few years ago, and it 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 works for for many many children. Um, so people can reach out to me at my website or on Instagram. I'm Kids Grief Support on Instagram. So those are probably the the top two places to find me. Um, and you also I, have a book, uh, a kid's book as well? Yes. I um, In August of this year, I wrote a children's book specifically for bereaved siblings called Forever Connected. And nice. that can be found really anywhere that you buy books. Um, it's on, on Amazon, um, Barnes and Nobles. It can be requested for purchase really at any bookstore or library. So um, hopefully those that are in need of that book are, are able to, to find that and utilize that book. Uh, wonderful, Jessica. Thank you so much for, for being you and for doing this work. Um, I know it's not easy to be sitting um, in the grief of others and, and yourself uh, on a daily basis. I mean, I, I always have such admiration for anybody that is serving in, in the type of way that you are, because it's not easy, I'm assuming, to just leave it at home um, at the end of the day, because I mean, you really are immersing yourself with um with people's grief and and the pain and and by doing that by showing up having the conversations and being present you are you're helping people through it so you know thank you thank you for for all that you're doing and uh yeah i really enjoy the conversation thank you so much ryan i appreciate it